Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. By now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you have heard it's been a week since my friend and your friend, uh, Nabil Qureshi, passed away after a year-long battle with stomach cancer. And I'd like to spend this first segment answering a question that everybody has been asking, if not openly, at least quietly. And given the fact that Nabil was a brilliant apologist and someone that converted from Islam to Christianity and would, seemed to be doing so much good for Christ, and of course he was, and he was a young man, 34, why didn't God heal Nabil? And it's, it's a hard question, but I decided to write a column on it this week. It went up on the stream, stream.org, on Monday. And it's since been reposted on our website, crossexamine.org, One News Now, The Christian Post, uh, uh, Charisma, uh, several other sites. Uh, and I, I want to share some of my thoughts uh, from that column with you here in the first segment. And then we're going to have Dr. Michael Brown on, who has a brand new book. You're going to want to hear about it. And, and what he's going to say is going to help save America. That's the title of the book, Saving a Sick America. But I want to talk, uh, at least in this first segment, about my friend Nabil and, and you know, why didn't God heal him? It seems a waste. It seems senseless that God would have would have not healed him when he when he obviously could have. Uh, and one one thing people will say is, well, maybe because there is no God, uh, and evil proves there's no God. We've been through that on this program several times before. Evil does not disprove God. Evil actually shows God exists because there would be no such thing as evil unless there was good and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. So that's out. It's not that there is no God. Some will say, well, maybe it's because the Muslim God is the true God and he punished Nabil for leaving him. And of course, my response to that is no, because there's excellent evidence that the Christian view of God is true, that the Christian God is true, not what Muslims call Allah, although that can be generically used as the term for God. I'd also say that when Muslims, if they suggest this, should be asked, if it's true, if this is your, your reason that, that God took out Nabil and did not heal him, why did your God wait until Nabil had written three best-selling books, made hundreds of hours of videos, and helped bring hundreds of Muslims to Christ? I mean, is Allah's timing off? No, that can't be the case. Not only that, Nabil's work will continue to bring people to Christ, probably in an accelerated manner after his passing. And we've seen his books uh, skyrocket up the Amazon charts since his passing. Now, some may suggest that people like Nabil who experienced tragedy must be worse sinners than others. Jesus refuted that kind of shallow speculation directly in Luke 13 when he talked about uh, some evil that happened to people. He said, no, I tell you, no, they're not worse sinners, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
And the point is, we're, the point here is, is we're all sinners who will perish, and we need to repent before it's too late. Some will say, well, maybe it's because Nabil didn't have enough faith. Now, people who claim this didn't know Nabil, and they don't know correct theology. Nabil's trust in Christ was deep and wavering right to the end. But the larger point is this, is that faith does not guarantee good health and wealth, as word of faith preachers assert. Or at least they suggest, you know, if, 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 if you're not healthy and wealthy, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, that self-serving theology can be, refu- can be refuted by one simple observation, and that is this. Jesus and the apostles weren't healthy and wealthy. In fact, they suffered and died for their beliefs. So don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. No, none of those things can be reasons as to why God didn't heal Nabil. So now you ask the question, why, why didn't he heal him? Well, I mean, for what purpose did God have for allowing Nabil to die? And in answering that question, we need to admit that there can be no ultimate purpose to Nabil's death or any event if there is no ultimate purpose to life. But since God does exist and the purpose of life is to be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, then even tragedies can help achieve that purpose. I think more people will come to know Christ because of Nabil's death. Now, it's impossible to know to what extent of that, uh, that's going to happen right now, but it's not impossible for God. Why? Well, we can't see it fully because every event, good and bad, ripples forward into the future to touch countless other events and people. This is known as the ripple effect. I've talked about it before. It's also known as the butterfly effect, which says that a butterfly, say, flapping its wings in South Africa can create a series of events that bring rain to a drought-stricken portion of the United States. We can't trace all of those events that the butterfly starts, all those ripples, but God, who's outside of time, can. In fact, think about all the billions of events in history that have rippled forward to put you where you are now and to partially make who, who, easy for me to say, partially to make you who you are now. They've rippled forward from history. We can't trace all those ripples, but God can. So we don't know why God didn't heal Nabil, but we know why we don't know why. We're finite. God is infinite. The good news is this, that God's character and power guarantees that God will bring good from evil to those that love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Now, that may happen later in this life, and it certainly will spill over into eternal life. It may motivate people. Nabil's death may motivate people, so there's a ripple effect that goes into the future that many thousands of great evangelists arise, partially because of what Nabil did and how uh, Nabil died and how people knew about it. I mean, we don't know, but it certainly is possible. And God says he can guarantee that good things will come from evil. In fact, the ripple effect led a pastor in Notre Dame 150 years ago, the Notre Dame in Paris, to trust God even when he couldn't see any good coming from evil. He said this, and this I think is one of the most profound things ever said on this topic. He said, if God would concede me his power for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Because God is all wise. I mean, they will say, well, God is all powerful and he's all loving. But evil exists, so he must not be all-powerful. He must not be all-loving. No, you're, you're leaving one thing out. God is also all-wise. Yes, he's all-powerful and he's all-loving. He's also all-wise, so he may allow evil because in his wisdom, 
he can bring a greater good from it. And God will redeem Nabil's death for good, just like he, re- he redeemed Nabil himself. Now, Nabil is with the Lord now. He's obviously in no more pain. He has graduated to what we all hope to graduate to, the very presence of the Lord. But his wife, Michelle, and his daughter, Aya, who is just about two years old, still remain with us. And if you watch Nabil's video blog on his YouTube channel, in one of his final videos, he says, please pray for my family as well as my parents, Nabil's loving parents. And you can do more than pray. You can actually help Michelle and Aya financially, and you can do so by going to the GoFundMe page uh, that you can Google, or if you go to the article, and by the way, the article I'm reading from is my own called Why Didn't God Heal Nabil Qureshi? At the end of the article, second to last paragraph, you'll see a link, and it, it, it says, uh, would you please, uh, if you can help Michelle and Aya financially, would you please do so here? And just click that link and you can do so. Now, while we grieve, let us be thankful for Nabil's eternally significant life. That man, Nabil Qureshi, did more for the kingdom of God in 34 years than 10,000 people do in 80 years. And the ripples he created, really they were waves, not just ripples. The waves he created will help carry people into heaven for generations. So I say to Nabil, blessings to you, brother. I will see you on the other side. And there's going to be a lot more people seeing you and the Lord on the other side because of what you did and what your work will continue to do. So I praise God for Nabil Qureshi's life. And if you want to read more about that, you can read the article, Why Didn't God Heal Nabil Qureshi? Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. See you then. Welcome back to Cross Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. You know, we've talked a lot on this program about the culture and about how the culture is in trouble and the church is in trouble. What can we do about it? What can we do about our country? And my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, has been on this program several times before. It is heard on the American Family Radio Network, I think on the weekends, his uh, radio program, Line of Fire, which is, by the way, on every day on another network, uh, two hours every day. And you can go to lineoffire.com and learn more about that radio program. But he's just written a new book that's coming out in a few days. It's called Saving a Sick America, a Prescription for Moral and Cultural Transformation. Dr. Dr. Brown, as you know, because you've listened to this program before, he's the author of over 25 books. He has his PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literature from NYU, New York University. He's been a faculty member at seven of the top seminaries here in the in the country. He travels internationally. He does radio. He does TV. He's on the internet all the time. He's a warrior for Christ. So it's great having uh, Dr. Brown on here. And by the way, he's in the same town I am, Charlotte, so we get to work together on occasion. Mike, great having you on. Great to be with you, Frank, and appreciate all that you do. Well, thank you, sir. Now, when I 
Uh, when you sent me the the, there's actually a trailer for this book that I think people need to see, and it's at savingasickamerica.com, a little YouTube trailer that you can watch to see what this is about. But Mike, when I read the first chapter of this book, I was not to overstate it, but I was kind of shocked. <laughs> Because you paint such a picture of the transition from America, say, 50 years ago to where it is today. Can you kind of, in a few minutes, kind of paint that transition for people right now? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and this book, Saving a Sick America, is filled with hope, but it's filled with realism. Mm -hmm. And before we can get to the, the prescription, we need to get to the diagnosis. Before we can talk about the cure... We need to talk about how sick America is. So I actually prayed about this, and I asked the Lord to give me a way to convey in just a few short words, not 20 or 30 pages, but just a few pages, how sick our nation is. And I got the idea of a man. He lives in the suburbs of Pennsylvania with his wife and kids. He's, he's got a boy and two girls. They're 15, 13, and 9. It's June of 61. The kids have been out playing all day with their friends and riding bikes and stuff, and mom's just about finished with a great meal. Dad's coming home from work, and I paint a picture of what life was like at that time. And then it's, it's TV night, so the whole family's watching TV together and watching Leave It to Beaver on mm-hmm. TV night. And remember, when we were growing up, and I'm born in 55, Leave It to Beaver just seemed like a neat show, a fun show, and it didn't seem like this impossible, unreal family. It was like, yeah, it's a neat family. Well, he falls asleep watching Leave it to Beaver with his family, and when he wakes up, it's today. So the first, the shock, is this massive, giant screen in front of him, you know, <laughs> oozing with color. What's that? But he looks like, well, what's, what's going on? It's, it's, it's a new dating show. Like, what in the world? So he, he just, he's got this remote control. He's trying to figure out how to use it. He presses a button. Next thing, it's, it's two men making out, taking their clothes off. He's like, what in the world? He switches to something else. It's vampires having sex. And he thinks, did I, did I wake up in hell? And, and then he, he switches again. And, oh, nice family-friendly thing. Looks like kind of bonanza. People, you know, with these shotguns. And they're, they're blowing their heads off zombies and brains exploding on the screen. So he's, it's, what in the world's going on? Then he looks around the room, and he realizes, okay, nobody's here. And, and I paint a picture of what each of the kids are doing, the, the 15-year-old, and it's good he's out of the house, because otherwise he's playing Grand Theft Auto, playing these violent video games six hours a day and raping women and killing cops. So at least he's out with his friends. They're, they're at some new movie in the Hostel series where, where people are tortured to death for fun, and he's, he's hanging out with his friend uh, Robbie, who used to be Robin when he was a girl. And then his wife, she's with the 13-year-old, and they're discussing her antidepressants. She's still cutting herself, and she's been depressed since her best friend at school committed suicide after someone sent out a naked picture of her to the other kids. And and, and then the 9-year-old, thankfully, is at home, because since these two kids were killed in the neighborhood not that long ago, they're still looking for their perpetrator. She's thankfully at home dancing to Beyonce music. It's a good thing she doesn't know what the bumping and grinding's about. And, And suddenly he wakes up and realizes, wait, I, this is all a dream, this is a nightmare. He's back in 1961, and he thinks, well, I'm glad this could never happen to America. Frank, that's how far we've fallen. Yes, and the first chapter, what you just said there, is kind of a paraphrase of the first chapter. When you read that first chapter, you go, 
wow, we have fallen quite far. Now, you go on to say that not everything is worse now than it was then, obviously. There were race, more race relation problems, although we still have them today. Uh, there are some other things that maybe are better today than what they were then. But generally, morally speaking, our country has gone down a, a or off a cliff when it comes to morality. And we've made evil popular and attractive. And yeah. you're we, talking we about have, how can and we... And again, we recognize, say, in the 60s, we had segregation. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have the same opportunities in the workplace for women. Mm-hmm. We had other issues in our society. But I don't think anyone could argue that, that watching Lassie was a lot more innocent and family-friendly than, than watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, for example. Right. Or, or, or that watching Leave it to Beaver was more wholesome than watching Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And, and these things are now celebrated. I mean, think of it. You have every type of, of sexual immorality celebrated. Game of Thrones, which is this mega-popular series watched by millions of Americans and also watched around the world. I mean, even incest is celebrated on it. There are brother and sister that actually have a kid. And, and that's just part of the narrative and all kinds of heterosexual sin, homosexual sin. It's celebrated. The number of teenage girls now with sexually transmitted diseases that are going to carry those for the rest of their lives. The, the fact that the institution of marriage itself comes under assault. The fact that the Bible, which plays such a key role in American history and early American development and early American education, as, as we get into in-depth and some of these opening chapters to paint a picture. The fact that that's reviled, that separation of church and state now means freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion. The massive debt that we're in, the, just everything out of control, massive obesity and the effect that's having on our healthcare industry. I mean, just across the board, things seem to be in moral and spiritual decline in America, and yet I believe the reason God had me write this book was to say, yes, America's in critical condition, but it's not too late for America. And the name of the book is Saving a Sick America, written by my friend Dr. Michael Brown. It is a prescription for moral and cultural transformation. It's out this week. You can go to savingasickamerica.com, look at the trailer. You can also get the book there. You can get the book on Amazon, anywhere else you get books. And, Mike, I think part of the problem, too, is we've become, we become desensitized, as even as Christians, to the kind of stuff, say, we see on TV. In fact, a friend of mine uh, mentioned to me a few months ago, she says, I'm watching this TV show. And uh, there's, uh, there's a gay relationship going on, so I shut it off, and I go, I go to another TV show, and it's just uh, a heterosexual couple who are not married, and, and they're in a, a sexual relationship. And I didn't think anything of it until it hit me. I go, hey, I'm desensitized to this now. This is normal to me now. You know, my antenna's up when it, come, when it came to the, the homosexual indoctrination, but the premarital sex indoctrination... I just imbibe that like it's nothing. I'm such a hypocrite. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's... yeah, we, ha- we have been desensitized, for mm-hmm. sure. And you just look at all the shows where, say, the lead couple is living together out of wedlock. Right. And, and I, w- I was watching a tennis match, and afterwards, the guy who won, they're talking to him. They said, now, this is a big year for you guys. Yes, it is. We just had our first child, and then later this year, we're getting married. It's just, mm-hmm. it's so normal. You say, well, mm-hmm. what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is that marriage becomes less in the eyes of people, 
And, and we know from studies for decades, in America and other nations, that couples that cohabit are much less likely to stay together after marriage than couples that don't, which means, and you've documented this in, in your Correct But Not Politically Correct book, when you separate kids from a father, when you separate them from a stable mother and father environment, it has disastrous impact on them as they grow up. So we're not just trying to say in some puritanical way, you must do what the Bible says and hit people over the head with the Bible. What I try to do in every chapter in Saving Sick America is say, God's ways are best. God's ways make sense. Mm -hmm. God's ways are ways of life. And just like the radical feminist movement does not produce lots of children, and gay activism does not produce lots of children, and the pro-abortion movement doesn't produce lots of children, and then that produces a crisis for the next generation, because there's not a support system as the society grows older. God's ways produce life, produce solid families, and produce sustainable societies. So what I want to say to America is, starting with the Church, if we can go back to God's prescription, not only will we get healthy, we can show the world there's a better way. And that's what we want to show people is that God's ways work. We're, as you just said, we're not trying to say that uh, you have to do this because God said so. We're, we're saying, well, God did say this, obviously, but we're saying that it actually will be a benefit for you and the nation. Now, Mike, in chapter five, uh, you talk about how key the issue is regarding how we are created in the image of God. Unpack that for us for a minute. Why is that so important? Yeah, absolutely. So after we lay out how sick we are, and then go back and look at America's roots and how Christian they were, and then say, look, we want to get back to the Word, but we don't want a theocracy. Mm -hmm. So let's start in the beginning. Genesis 1, not only is God the Creator, but God created us in His own image. We are different than the animal world. And that means every human being has inestimable value. That's why Genesis 9-6 initially established the death penalty for the human race, because human beings are created in the image of God, and therefore an attack, murder of a human being, the unlawful killing of a human being, is in that sense an assault on the very image of God. And, and there's an extraordinary story I quote in the book from an Indian leader, a highly respected Indian leader, about how a family just allowed their little daughter to starve to death, mm. and it was purely an economic decision for them. They already had a girl to help. Boys were more important. If they fed this little girl, then someone else in the family was going to starve to death. Therefore, a wise economic decision was to let her starve to death, and that's what they ultimately did, despite all the efforts from the, this Christian couple that tried to help. And that's what happens when we fail to realize the value of every human being. So we have a culture of death in America, ranging from abortion to our fascination with death entertainment. It's just everywhere. And that's one of the things we get totally desensitized to, the violence of our culture, the death aspect of our culture. All right, hold the on to the thought, Mike. We're going to come back right after the break. There are ways that we could fix this, and Dr. Michael Brown's going to show us how right after the break. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. want to mention, if you're in Savannah, Georgia today from 2 to 5 at the Savannah Civic Center, 
I'll be there with some Christian bands. We're talking about I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We're giving away a whole number of prizes. They're even giving away cars at this event. I've been invited to it to be the uh, keynote speaker. So if you're anywhere near Savannah, Georgia, this afternoon, Saturday, September 23rd, 2 to 5 p.m., come down to the Savannah Civic Center. The details are on our website, crossexamine.org. It's the Stan 2017 student event, and it's free. But you got to get there early if you want to register for some of the door prizes. They're actually giving away two two cars, believe it or not. Anyway, so if you want to be a part of that, come on down. And then this coming Tuesday, Winthrop University, Rock Hill, North Carolina. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, 7.30 p.m. Uh, I hope to see you there. It's open to the public uh, as well. So that will be this coming Tuesday, September 26th at Winthrop University. Back to my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, his new book, Saving His Sick America, a prescription for moral and cultural transformation. And before uh, the music rudely interrupted you, Mike, we were talking about the importance of believing that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. Just continue your thought there. You were talking about this couple who had a baby that they basically starved to death because they did not have the right view of humanity. Yeah, an, an Indian couple, impoverished couple, uh, and and this Christian family saw what was happening, this little baby dying terribly ill, and they, they, they took the baby from this, from this Indian couple. There were other Indians. They took them. They brought it to the hospital. They got treatment, brought it into the home, rehabilitated the child, brought it back to the impoverished couple, who then let it starve again. The Christian couple took the child back, rehabilitated a second time, and then brought the baby back and then found the third time around that the, the other Indian couple let them starve to death. And it was, it was an economic decision. They only had so much food for the family. They already had a daughter uh, who was going to take care of, of, of things, helping out the mother. They already had boys, which were more valuable than girls. This is purely an economic decision. When we don't realize that every human being is created in the image of God, beginning with the baby in the womb and right up to the, the elderly person with Alzheimer's, when we don't realize that, we can say that some human beings are more valuable than others, that some human beings, maybe they're better educated, maybe they have more money, maybe they have more power, social prestige, maybe they have more gifts. They're more valuable, but these despised ones, these helpless ones, these worthless ones, these poor ones, these old ones, they don't have value. That is something that is so destructive in our culture. And we know the origins of Planned Parenthood tied in with eugenics as well, and eugenics fed the the fires of, of Nazi Germany. You have a superior race, and these inferior ones, these pariahs, these parasites have to be destroyed. So we start in Saving a Sick America to explain how recognizing that every human being is created in the image of God, then confers value and dignity on us, even in our fallenness. That's the first thing. And then I have a whole chapter on from the walking dead to a culture of life. I'm not saying someone's going to hell if they enjoy watching the walking dead. What I'm saying is it's part of our fascination with, with dead things, with, with the netherworld, with, with the dark things, as opposed to a fascination with life. And I, I give practical steps. Frank, some things I write, I've taught on for years. Same with you. You have them deep in your heart. You can communicate, uh, you know, just at the push of a button. Other things you really need to think about and pray about. And that's what I do for some of these chapters. God, from your word, show us the path of life. And again, 
God's blessings are ways of life. You read the book of Proverbs, and it's filled with life, life, life. Do this, and you live. Do this, and you die. The same when you read through John's Gospel, a pervasive theme. Life, life, eternal life, eternal life. I speak these things to you, that you can have life. So I encourage people to journal over one month. Go about their normal lives. Don't change anything. And, and journal how much death they take in by choice. I'm not talking about someone that's in a war-ravaged area and there's death all around and they can't get away from it. I mean by our choice, by our choice in entertainment, by our choice in the things that we take in. Journal how much death you take in, and then the next month, step away from those and spend extra time in communion with God and then reading Proverbs and John every day. And see what happens after a month. Maybe you go back to some of that other stuff. It's like, yuck, this is ugly. This is dark side. And I have to admit, frankly, as you mentioned being desensitized earlier on, I've definitely been desensitized. I remember the first time someone showed me a mixed martial arts fight. Like, oh, God, oh, it's cringing. And don't hurt the guy, oh, the blood. And now I could watch it. It's like, wow, it's a good punch. And again, I'm not saying you're going to hell if you watch mixed martial arts. I'm saying it's part of the desensitizing of our culture. And, and we're going to spot it in some of the more overt ways. But other ways that influence us, we don't even spot. And rather than us changing the world, the world changes us. And the, the book is called Saving a Sick America with Dr. Michael Brown. And those you, you give a five-point menu or recipe on what you need to do in order to sort of renew your mind. And it's on the top of page 76. So you need to get this book, ladies and gentlemen, Saving a Sick America by Michael Brown. I also want to bring this up in that same chapter, Mike, because this is an important point. It happens to be on page 71. Uh, you say that one way you can show people that abortion, particularly to a feminist, is bad is point out how anti-woman abortion is. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, when Mother Teresa said this, abortion kills twice. It kills the body of the baby, and it kills the conscience of the mother. Abortion is profoundly anti-women. Three-quarters of its victims are women, half the babies and all the mothers. And then let's, let's be realistic. In countries like China, mm. in countries like India, where a male child is considered more valuable than a female child, you have infanticide in some cases where a female child is allowed to die or killed, or you have gender-selective abortion. So women end up being greater victims of abortion than anyone else. And, you know, what also is striking, doing talk radio for years now, the calls that I get from women who had abortions, they'll call in. Some of them have been serving the Lord for 30 years. They know God forgave them for the abortion but they get on the phone and they break down weeping. I've had uh, men call in weeping and saying, I convinced my girlfriend to have an abortion 30 years ago, and it still weighs on them. We had a call from a woman uh, who was a Christian who took a job at Planned Parenthood because at that time she was a single mother in need of money, and her friend said, well, it's okay as a Christian, you're not actually performing abortion. And she asked for my counsel. I told her, you've got to get out of there. God will forgive you, but you've got to get out of there. And then she started to talk. She said, well, I've, I've had a cross train, and I've gone in the back room, and I've seen the so-called products of conception. She starts weeping on the phone. She said, they're little babies. They're arms and legs and eyes. Those are children. And a lot of those children, and in some countries, over half of those children are women. So it, it attacks the woman, the mother, 
and then it attacks the precious life within the womb, and at a disproportionate amount, often women. So we need to understand this. But again, we want to give practical ways where there can be life, not just condemnation, not just diagnosing the sickness, but throughout Saving a Sick America, practical life-giving solutions. And you do in this book, Saving a Sick America. My friend Mike Adams puts it this way. If people have any doubt what's in a womb, he says, dead things don't grow. And obviously, what's growing in a mother's womb isn't dead. It's alive. It's a human being. It's not a squirrel. It's not a fox. It's not an alligator. It's a human being. We all know that. And uh, if, if you don't want it, then give it up for adoption. Give the baby up for adoption, but do not kill the baby. Uh, and as, as Mike said, uh, three-quarters of its victims, of abortions victims, are women. Half the babies and all the mothers. But I think it's even worse than that, as you mentioned, Mike, because I remember reading when we did our book, Legislating Morality, this is about 20 years ago, that in some parts of China, the male-female ratio in terms of, of young males and young females was about 64 to 36%. In other words, there were 64% of, of the population was male and 36% were women because of selective abortion. Because the families don't want the girls, they just want the guys. And it's just led to this in, incredible disparity between uh, men and women in some areas of China. I want to now go to uh, page 94 of Saving a Sick America, because this was a, an amazing point. If you're out there right now, friends, and you think, well, what can I do? I can't change the culture. I'm just one person. This is a multi-generational approach, and it's a stunning, it has a stunning success rate. Mike, explain how multi-generational change occurs. You know, this this broadcast is airing, I believe, on what was supposed to be the end of the world. <laughs> that's right. That's the right, end yeah. of the world and Jesus coming back. So I uh -huh. put out videos and articles days in advance saying, sorry, it's not yeah. going to happen. Right. Uh, just letting you know, it's not going to happen. So in, in point of fact, a lot of Christians have this doomsday mentality. We're out of here any minute. They mm -hmm. have this mentality that culture is only going in one direction. There's nothing we can do about it. So, of course things continue to degenerate, because we're not thinking long-term. So I live in readiness. I live in expectation. Lord, come. I'm ready for your return. At the same time, I'm thinking about kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, the kind of world they're going to inherit. So I have a whole chapter on the importance of having a multi-generational mentality. You see mm. it in the Psalms. You see it where one generation tells the next and the generations that follow. And that's been the strength of traditional Judaism. So there is a shocking chart, and, and we take the information from the chart and, and put it in the book. So in Saving a Sick America, starting on page 93 into 94, it's called, Will Your Grandchildren Be Jewish? And it divides the world, the Jewish world, into five categories, from secular, meaning completely unreligious, on the far left, to uh, ultra-Orthodox on the far right, so extremely observant and traditional. And it starts with 100 in each category, right? So mm -hmm. you've got a theoretical secular Jewish family with 100, uh, 100 uh, people represented across those families, and then all the way over to ultra-Orthodox. So what happens is, because these are not traditional families, they intermarry at higher rates and hence get lost to Judaism and Jewish tradition. And not only do they intermarry at higher rates, but they, they also don't pass the faith on to the next generation. So check this out. By the fourth generation, Frank, mm -hmm. a very religious Jewish family, four generations, that hundred people becomes 3,401. 
the secular Jewish families that started with 100, after four generations, they now have seven that still identify as Jewish. I know. Mind-boggling. It, it, so it is. A simple thing I, we do. We get yeah, stoked wh- about family. We get stoked right. about family as God intended it. It's a way that we change the world. That's that. When I read that, I went, "Wow, this is." And you write, you write right here on page ninety-four. This is incredible. Let me just rephrase what what Mike said. And, and his book is "Saving a Sick America." He said that after four generations, the secular group only seven people identified as Jewish, but in the Orthodox group, three thousand four hundred one identified as Jewish. And the point here is, is that if American Christians today begin to celebrate marriage and family, we can be the dominant demographic group within two or three generations. So it's a generational thing. More with Dr. Micah Brown and his new book, Saving a Sick America. I'm Frank Turk. Don't go away. Back in two. Saving a Sick America, a prescription for moral and cultural transformation by my friend, Dr. Michael Brown. We've been talking to him in the past two segments. And Mike, uh, that what we talked about just coming out of the break or going into the break, I should say, that this is a multi-generational process. Things don't always change overnight. And I think Christians uh, think that, well, if I can't do something that's going to have an impact immediately tomorrow, it's not worth doing. No, culture doesn't change that way. Families don't change that way. It's the long run that we need to keep in mind. And we're called to be faithful. We can't guarantee a result. We just do what's right and we leave the results to God. Now, Mike, you have several other chapters in this book uh, that are just... uh, extremely well worth reading. I read most of this book today, a little bit yesterday and today. And uh, you have uh, Reclaiming Our Schools and Learning How to Think Again. That couldn't be more important. Restoring Thunder to Our Pulpits. Say something about that, because when I read that chapter, I went, you know, you're absolutely right. There's no thunder in our pulpits today. Explain that one. Yeah, and I, I really felt stirred to write this chapter. Obviously, the whole book I felt stirred to write. But I know that pastors, shepherds, leaders are called to shepherd the flock with gentleness. I know that we're called to reach out to the hurting, to the outcasts with compassion. I understand that, that the gospel is going to reach the marginalized, and we need great sensitivity and wisdom. At the same time, I wonder, when do we ever leave sobered by the message we heard from a church service or a Bible study? When, when do we leave with a holy reverence for God? When do we leave with the realization that one day we're going to stand before Almighty God and give account? When do we realize these things? Where's the thunder from our pulpit? I, I start the chapter with a quote from Charles Finney in 1873, where he basically says that if the society is messed up, that's the fault of the pulpit. Now, certainly, 1873, the pulpit had more influence in America than today, but I still believe that holds true, because we are called to be the salt, we are called to be the light, we still have 24-hour Christian radio, Christian TV, we're still all over the internet, we still have New York Times bestsellers, we have massive influence, but for the most part, we preach God the genie, and and we don't preach God the judge. For the most part... We, we preach a, a pep talk, feel-good gospel. To sum up the American gospel, it goes like this. This is who I am. This is how I feel. God is here to please me. The biblical gospel is this is who God is. This is how he feels. And we are here to please him. 
we're in a society today where we have to keep justifying God to people and tell people he's really, he's really a pretty good guy. You should give him a shot, as opposed to people wanting to get into right relationship with God. So I challenge leaders, ask yourselves a question. You know, are, are your words calculated to wake up a sleeping church? Are your words calculated to bring conviction? And in Saving the Sick America, in the chapter Restoring Thunder to Our Pulpits, I, I quote some shocking uh, stats from George Barna. Mm. It was 2014, and the Barna people told me they got the same results last year, 2016. And, and that was that 90% plus of American pastors said the Bible contains all the information we need to deal with all of the key cultural moral issues in the society. And yet, 90% said they don't use the Bible to address those issues. Why? Fear of losing people, fear of losing money, fear of losing popularity. That sounds like being a hireling more than being a shepherd. And ironically, 90% of the people want their pastors to talk about these issues because they need guidance. This is the world they live in. This is the world their kids live in. So in short, America is largely messed up because the church is largely messed up. The church is largely messed up because so many leaders, Christian leaders, are largely messed up. If we get our act in order, it can have a ripple positive effect. And, and this is where I put a large part of the blame. I'm not so much concerned with the presence of darkness. I'm concerned with the absence of light. Mm-hmm. If I go into a room, I check into a hotel, and I flip the light on, and it doesn't go on at night, I don't get mad at the darkness. Darkness is just doing what it does. I want to know what's the matter with the light. That's my question in America. What's the matter with the light? We don't curse the darkness. We try to turn on the light. So, Mike, I think what you said is so true regarding the hesitancy of pastors who are afraid of people walking out the door, which means the money doesn't come in, which means they can't pay their staff, which means they don't have a church anymore. So how do you how do you communicate to them that their job is to preach the truth and leave the results to God? Well, obviously, you seek to stir their hearts with reality and call them into a fresh encounter with God so that they can get their lives in order before God. Secondly, you encourage them that their flock needs this, that the mm-hmm. world needs this, mm-hmm. that, that our appeasement strategy hasn't worked. It would be one thing if we could say, look, it's worked. That not confronting these issues, they've now gone away, or people have seen how loving the Church is, and now they've turned away from these things. No, there's all-out war on the Church today. I, I just read in Australia where they're about to have a national vote on redefining marriage that one woman fired an 18-year-old employer, this is a secular company, because the 18-year-old said that she was going to vote against same-sex marriage, and, and she said, I don't want any homophobes working for me, and I don't like these Christian values. You're fired. And then you, you can relate to this as well, very personally. So our non-confrontational method has not helped us at all. I liken it to a doctor who doesn't tell his patients the truth because he doesn't want to offend them and lose his patients. Well, they're just going to die. So what we need to do is encourage our brothers and sisters, following Jesus means taking up the cross. And right now across the world, there are brothers and sisters of ours who are being slaughtered, who are being tortured, who are being burned alive, who are being beheaded for their faith. And we're afraid to speak the truth because we might lose some supporters or might, might lose a prestigious board member. Shame on us. Jesus said, if you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, life for my sake and the gospel, you find it. And then let's model it. Let's say, here's how you speak the truth in love. 
Here's how you join compassion together with conviction. Here's a way to do it, and then we'll do it in honor to the Lord, and whatever the consequences are, let them be. What's interesting, though, is that if you'll look around the world, and even in America, the churches that are growing and thriving are the ones that preach the Bible and hold to what Scripture says, by and large, and the ones who try to win the world by becoming like the world are the ones that are bleeding and losing the most young people of all, because people are going to church and looking to God because they're looking for something different. They're not going to church to be like the world, and when we're like the world, we offer no hope, we offer no change lives, and, and instead of preaching a message that's going to go against the grain, we think we can swim with the tide, save our reputation, have everybody like us. Maybe people will like us, but in the end, they'll curse us because we didn't tell them the truth. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I think uh, Tony Perkins has done some research in on this, too, that um, that the, the pastors that actually are bold and speak to the issues of the day without apology, they do lose some people in the beginning, but they wound up gaining more people later. And those people that they do gain and the people that do stay in their church are more devoted than ever. And I can give several examples. In fact, there, there are so few people doing this that if you do this, Pastor, in your area, you're actually going to be unique. <laughs> and uh, and you're going to get a much more devoted following and, and better disciples. I can think of uh, just people off the top of my head like Jack Hibbs out at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, or Todd Wagner down at Watermark in Dallas. I mean, just a couple of guys. Or Jim Garlow out in San Diego. These, those guys, they will just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may, and, and they're thriving. They're thriving. But, of course, if they wouldn't thrive, if they turned out to be Jeremiah, they should still speak the truth, exactly. right? <laughs> that's, that's, exactly. that's still the point. Anyway, now, we got just a few minutes left, Mike. Let's go to the last chapter of the book because uh, you, you're trying to save a sick America, and you're trying to give people practical ways to do so. And, again, the book is called Saving a Sick America. Uh, my guest is the author of the book, Dr. Michael Brown. He's been, been on the program several times before. And uh, just give us a few insights from the final chapter. It's the church's great opportunity. Yeah. When, when I was praying last year, I just heard this quiet internal voice saying, write a book on the fall and rise of America. And my mind would think the rise and fall, our best days are behind us, rise and fall. When I thought my heart was fall and rise, yeah, we're, we're very fallen. We're, we're in very sick condition. But our best days could actually be ahead of us. So the last chapter, the church's great opportunity, I try to present a different way of looking at things, a biblical way that says, 1 John 2, 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The attitude of victory, the attitude of overcoming, not pessimism, not hopelessness. Look, the world may come collapsing around us. We may be the last generation and may see all types of heavy persecution and cosmic shaking. Let it be. The church will still shine in the midst of it. And someone show me chapter and verse. I'm a Bible guy. Show me chapter and verse that says there will not be another great awakening in America. So in this chapter, I talk about changing our mentality. It was a, the story of a salesman that I quote. He sent over to Africa by his shoe company, a big company. After years of research, they open a warehouse. They ship thousands of boxes of books. They said, we're going to branch out internationally starting in the city. Their top salesman arrives. Minutes later, he's texting back, get me out of here. The people that don't wear shoes, you crazy? <laughs> so they bring him back immediately. 
They sit down, they consult again, they say, we think it was a good decision. We think it was the right decision. They send their number two salesman. Minutes later, he texts them when he, once he arrives, we need tens of thousands of boxes more shoes. Nobody here has any shoes. <laughs> In other words, America needs what we have. We have the medicine. We have the cure and the gospel. And I even show in this chapter some, some striking stats how pollsters have been very, very wrong before. How they, you know, they predicted wonderful, peaceful, younger generation in the 60s. They didn't see the counterculture revolution coming. And then they didn't see the Jesus people movement coming. So Time Magazine, April 1966, has a front cover, Is God Dead? June of 71, Time Magazine has a picture of a hippie-looking Jesus called the Jesus Revolution. And, and whether you like Donald Trump or not, go back three years. And if I said to you, what's more likely that we're going to have a great awakening in America in the next few years, or that Donald Trump will be our next president, largely elected with the help of white evangelicals as a champion of pro-life? You'd laugh at that That's last right. comment. Thanks. We're out of time. Make sure you get Mike's book, Saving a Sick American, ladies and gentlemen. And I will be in Savannah, Georgia this afternoon and at Winthrop University on Tuesday. I hope to see you there, and I hope to see you back here next week. God bless. I'm Frank Turek. See you. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.